Well, I want to encourage you to grab a Bible if you do not have one in front of you. Um, We're going to be reading from the 90th Psalm, Psalm 90. And I want to continue the series which we began more or less at the start of this lockdown season in which we began to look at some of these psalms and take the words of these psalms upon our lips as prayers in order to help and instruct us and enable us to know how to uh, communicate with and relate to God and receive encouragement from God in a strange and otherwise bizarre season of life. I want to read to you this 90th psalm. The words are um, underneath the video on either the church webpage or on the YouTube description, so you can follow along there. But let me read to you here. Uh, Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years are in your sight, are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood, they are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. I want to speak with you today about the theme of death. And the reason why I feel like this is an important subject to address is because I think it is human nature to really react in two very opposite uh, extremes to the reality of death. On the one hand, It seems to me like when we are confronted with the horror of death, our immediate sense is to recoil. and We feel moments in life where we're confronted, potentially at moments of tragedy, where we're confronted with the reality of death and we're filled with that horror. But then we very quickly retreat back into a place of uh, really of, of putting death to the back of our minds and of ignoring it as though it's not there. And mainly considering a distant reality that it's so far away from us that it's not really in our present momentary consideration. And I feel like we can see this tendency, even in the crisis that we've been going through, this tendency to lurch from one extreme to the other. At the beginning, we were very aware of the daily death count when it was in the tens, the twenties, the hundreds, and then entering into the thousands. And with every new uh, piece of news, it felt like a renewed sense of growing horror. And of course, 
interest in that has waned massively as we've grown used to the numbers and as our own sense of mortality has sort of faded to the back of our minds again and we've retracted back to our ordinary way of thinking and living. And so it seems to me like that the healthy way in the middle, which is where you live with this conscious sense of the reality of death and of your mortality is not our normal way of living. And yet confronting death can be absolutely life-changing. It can result in real lasting change and, and a powerful transformative effect in your life. I remember as a child, when I was just 13 years of age, my uncle, who was 47 at the time, died unexpectedly. And uh, this was in the mid of, middle of the 90s. And my dad, who was the younger brother to this uncle, uh, was hit very hard by this event happening. And I recall his tears. I recall the grief. We traveled up north to go to see the family and to attend the funeral. And uh, it, was, it was a sad occasion. But the most vivid memory I have of this whole period was the fact that my dad wanted to go and see his brother's body in the funeral home and to go pay his respects before the, uh, the day of the funeral. And he brought me along with him as a 13-year-old boy. And he did so very advisedly and thoughtfully. He wanted, even though I was quite young at the time, he wanted to bring me to go and see the body of my uncle. And I remember it well. He wanted me to be confronted with the reality of, of death, even at a young age. And I remember the, the pale skin in the lifeless form of my body as he lay, of my uncle as he lay there in that funeral home. And I feel that this is what this psalm wants to do for us. It wants you to, as it were, walk into a room and to confront the reality of a corpse, perhaps even of your own corpse, and to think carefully about the fact that you are mortal with the hope that this will bring change to the present reality of your life. Now, what is it then that Moses is feeling? What is it that he is feeling as he contemplates death, as he contemplates his own mortality and that of humanity? And the answer is not that he's feeling panic, and nor does he want us to feel panic. I remember my wife telling me the story some years ago when she was a junior doctor of having the very unfortunate experience of needing to tell a patient on the ward that they had terminal cancer and that their life would likely not live, that he would not live for longer than six months. And the reaction of this man was so extreme, he immediately entered into a state of panic there as he lay on his hospital bed. And she tried in vain to try and calm him down. But the sad reality was that his life expired there and then on the bed in front of her. His life was cut short by the panic of the reality of his coming death. And ironically, his life was cut short even in that moment. And certainly, that is one way that we can feel towards death if we're not ready to die. Panic is one reaction, but there's no hint of panic when you read this particular psalm. Nor is there a hint of fear. Nor is there a hint of anger even. I remember reading some years back a famous poem by a Welsh poet called Dylan Thomas. I want to read to you a couple of lines from this. He's wrote this. He was a Welsh poet, wrote this on the occasion of his own father's death. And the first and last stanza, what I want to read to you, they stand out. It's famous. He said, do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. 
And the final lines of the poem turn tenderly to his father in this way. He says, and you, my father, there on the sad height, curse, bless me now with your fierce tears, I pray. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And certainly, when you think about death in the, in the history of humankind, those reactions are normal to feel, to feel panic and fear or to feel anger at the reality of death. Another reaction that's obvious is grief. Jesus wept at the death of his friend Lazarus in John 11. And grief is appropriate. But none of these emotions are evident when you're reading this particular psalm. So what is it that Moses feels and what is it that he wants us to feel? And I think the, an- the answer is more captured by the idea of awe, the idea of humility, the idea of submission before a sovereign God. He feels his smallness. He feels the shortness of his life. He feels the temporary nature of his existence on this world. And he feels that every moment is lived before the watchful gaze of a sovereign God. And you can see this particularly in the first 11 verses of the psalm. As he meditates on and he reflects on the reality of our mortality. In opposition to the greatness of God. He speaks of God's eternal nature. He says in verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth. Or ever you had formed the earth and the world. From everlasting to everlasting. You are God. And then he says of us in verse 5. Like gra- that we're like grass. That's renewed in the morning. It's green for a day. And then it's yellow. And it's dyed. And it's faded away. He thinks of God as the creator. And us as the created. And he deliberately calls to mind the language of the creation story in this psalm. If you know the story, it says that God formed Adam out of the dust and then breathed into him the Ruach, the Spirit of God, the breath of God, and he became a living man. But here we see the undoing of that. He says in verse 2 that you return man to dust. Even though we were formed, we were living, we're flesh, we become dust again. And then he says, in verse 9, we bring all our years to an end like a sigh. So even as the breath of God fills our lungs and we're filled with the life of God as a gift, we can just as easily expire. We can breathe it out. And it's the final thing any person does is to breathe out their final breath and their lungs deflate and their life is gone. They return to the dust. He thinks about these things. He thinks about the perfection of God in contrast to our sinfulness. And he says in verse 8 that you've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. You know, for all these reasons, how short our life is, the fact that life is a gift from God and we can just as quickly be decreated as fast as we are created. And the fact that our, our, our lives are sinful tainted that we have secret sins things that we've not told anyone thoughts and cherished desires and even things we've done in our past that nobody knows about but God and for all these reasons Moses is brought to this point the end of verse 11 where he's, he feels like he's on his face he says who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you he's on his face he feels the greatness of God He feels how great God is over us, that God is the eternal one. He's the powerful one. He's the creator of all things. And what am I? I'm just frail flesh. But the psalm doesn't end there. And this is why I want us to focus on the last verses of the psalm. Because even though Moses meditated on the shortness of life, what he then does is he prays. And he asks God for a few 
requests in light of how short life is, these powerful and vital prayers that he prays in these last verses of the psalm, particularly for wisdom, for joy, and for meaning. And I want us to explore each of these things. He prays, first of all, for a heart of wisdom. And you see this in the 12th verse. He says, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. What is this wisdom that he's asking for? Well, at one level in the scriptures, when you see wisdom and folly being described, it can be understood just in terms of normal life and the day-to-day decisions we made living well. And in contrast, you know, I was a child of the 90s, grew up in the 90s and uh, born in the 80s, but grew up through the 90s as a teenager. And it was popular then to watch the program Jackass. These guys, just young men being stupid, just living for the moment, often endangering their lives, and in many ways depicting or being the epitome of the fool in contrast with what it means to live a wise life, to know how to invest long-term, to uh, make good choices that will result in long-term fruitfulness in your life. And certainly that's true at one level. But really, when you consider folly and wisdom in the Bible, the, the dimension of these words is much deeper than just making good choices in your life. Really, it has to do with the fear of God. This is why in verse 11 he says, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? And then he immediately says, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Wisdom in the scripture is always something that begins with the fear of God. There's something that begins with a sense of your mortality that then makes you feel like you're living every moment under the watchful gaze of an almighty God over you. Now, what kind of difference will this wisdom make to your day-to-day life? And I want to put it in the strongest language. This will make a total difference to your life. This is not a surface-level change that takes place when a person receives this wisdom from God. It is a total change that pervades Every single dimension and aspect of the way you live, your time, your talents, how you are living your life. And really what the scripture set up for us in this regard is two opposing ways of living. We know on the one hand that we can live with with no regard for God, either because we're not a Christian or because we've wandered away from God and we're functionally living like we're not Christians. And so we're going our own way. And the Bible tells us that this is to live like this world is your home, to live and to build your life around temporary things, things that are destined to crumble and to fall apart, and that this is ultimately the way of the fool. Even if on the surface of things, on a natural level, you look like a wise person with a good job, a nice family, all the rest of it. Nevertheless, scripturally, you can still be a fool. And this contrast was set up so beautifully in this parable, which has been on my mind many times Uh, in this present season, which is the parable of the two men building a house in the end of Matthew 7, where Jesus says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house upon a rock and the rain fell. You think about the season we're in. It is a time of a storm. The rain fell, the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell 
and great was the fall of it. The scriptures really say that there are fundamentally two ways to live your life, that you can live the life of the fool, which, as I said, on the surface, you can look like a smart person making right choices. But if your life is fundamentally built in this world and on the things of this world and not upon with a regard for God, then that makes you the fool, he says. On the other hand, the wise person who's, who's someone who lives under the watchful gaze of God. So teach us to number our days, Moses says, that we may get a heart of wisdom, that we may live under the great fear of you. And this kind of amp- impact this has on your life is, as I said, a total impact. I think of the words in Romans 12 where Paul says, And he's speaking to the Christians. He's telling them the kind of impact it should have to live for Christ, to live in view of the gospel. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In other words, you crawl onto the altar and say, God, I belong to you. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I think it is no accident that Paul mentions the body, the mind, and the will, every faculty of your being, to say that all of you should be impacted by the fact that your life is short and that you live for God and not for yourself. This is the way of the wise person. If you live the life of the fool, you're destined ultimately to experience unbelievable regret. And I, there are some very poignant lines in a song originally performed by Nine Inch Nails, but which was re, uh, redone by Johnny Cash, the song Hurt, in his old age. And there are a few lines in there which just resonate so deeply. He says, what have I become, my sweetest friend? Everyone I know goes away in the end. And you could have it all. My empire of dirt. I will let you down. I will make you hurt. And the final lines of the song say, if I could start again a million miles away, I will keep myself. I will find a way. It's a song which captures in poetic form a life of regret, a life in which you end it and you sense, I did it all wrong. I didn't live under the gaze of God. I didn't live the wise life, the life that was conscious of my creator. And so Moses prays and he prays it fervently. He prays and asks, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. And I want to urge you to also number your days in that way. He asks for wisdom. He then takes a surprising turn because not only does Moses ask for wisdom, which feels an intensely serious request, but he also asks for happiness. He asks for the capacity to experience joy. Now let me read you these lines again. Verse 13, return, O Lord, how long have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad, be happy all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we've seen evil. Now, I want to speak to this idea of what it means to live a happy life under God. But I think we need to step back and just address the question, why is the the common misperception that, that if anything, Christianity and to be to be a religious person as it were is more likely to make you miserable and I think there are a couple of very good reasons why that is the the perception out there the first is because of Christians unfortunately and the fact that many Christians often live lives which are in, in functionally at least seem to be a denial of their faith because of 
the misery of day-to-day life and because they carry themselves in this way. When I, um, reading Spiritual Depression by Martin Lloyd-Jones, where he speaks to this issue, he, he begins his book in the very first chapter addressing this as a problem. And he laments this issue of the unhappy Christian. And he laments it in this way. He says, in a sense, a depressed Christian is a contradiction in terms. And he is a very poor recommendation for the gospel. We're living in a pragmatic age. People today are not primarily interested in truth, but they are interested in results. The one question they ask is, does it work? They are frantically seeking and searching for something that can help them. He's saying that people are not so much wanting to look at us and ask us, well, what do you rationalize? What do you reason? What do you think is the truth? They're saying, what does your life tell me about whether your faith is real, whether it works ultimately? So he comes to this conclusion. Nothing is more important, therefore, than that we should be delivered from a condition which gives other people, looking at us, the impression that to be a Christian means to be unhappy, to be sad, to be morbid. And I know that we're speaking on the morbid theme today when we're thinking about the, the idea of death. And so there may be some irony in me reading those lines. But this is a surprising turn Moses takes. He says, look, if life is short, then why should we ought to be happy? And I'm trying to answer for you this question. Why is it that Christianity is not perceived as happiness? And one answer is because of Christians. Because of our failure to live up to the calling that we have in Christ. God himself, the scriptures show us clearly, is a happy God. He emanates joy. And he fills us then with his Holy Spirit. And one of the fruit of the Spirit given to us in, in the Scriptures is that we are to be filled with joy. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. And therefore, true Christianity is is brimming with joy. I'm not saying that it's it's a steady joy that is equal in every part of your life, but I am saying that it's real. That in fact, if anything, it's the default position of the Christian returning to a sense of deep, deep satisfaction and joy in God. That's one reason why people don't believe it. Another is just because at the surface level, Christianity may well look like it wants to take away the things in your life that make you happy because it commends a path of righteousness and that you know that that means saying no to this and to that and to that, things which you know displease God. But you see, God and the Christian faith is not opposed to happiness. It's just opposed to phony joy, fake joy counterfeit joy and you don't need to look any further than your own experience to know which the things which your conscience tells you are wrong are the things which only give you very temporary short-term pleasure and which ultimately leave leave you feeling wretched inside with a sense that there's something better out there god wants to take those things out of your life and replace it with a more beautiful lasting joy so what is this then that we're speaking of of. Moses reasons to himself it seems if life is short let it also be sweet let it be filled with happiness let it be filled with a sense of the pleasure of God on a day-to-day basis and this is how he describes us receiving it he says satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that is happiness Moses says to know the love of God every day of your life. That is what will fill you with a sense of the happiness of what it means to be his child. How do we experience this love? I think the answer is both directly and indirectly. The direct way in which we feel this love 
is through what I want to describe as the experience of God, that mystical reality, which is the birthright of a child of God, a believer, that you can encounter him. And certainly this was true in Moses' own life. We know of him that he spent a good amount of time in the tabernacle, which was where uh, the Ark of the Covenant was, a place of worship. He spent a certain amount of time in there. He went in there every day to be in God's presence. And Exodus 33 tells us that the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. So when he says here, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, I've no doubt that Moses has in mind that daily encounter that he enjoyed, the experience of God, the mystical reality of the presence of God in his own life, of knowing God as a friend. And the scriptures tell us in the New Testament, it tells us that when we, are, when we believe on Jesus and the Holy Spirit is given to us as a gift, he breathes his Holy Spirit into us. It tells us that the love of God is shed abroad or poured into our hearts. That's the experience of God. That's the direct sense in which you know the love of God, which fills your life with, with a joy like you haven't known before. And it's the testimony and the story of so many Christians You can think to their life prior to knowing Christ and their life of encountering God that was filled with this joy. But there's also the indirect way in which we experience this joy, this love that, that, that leads to this happiness. And I would describe it like this. It's, it's, it's the knowledge of the love of God which forms the atmosphere of your entire life so that everything that you experience and do in life is enhanced and filled with pleasure because you know you're loved. It's the backdrop to your entire life. You can think of it like this. When I've been on uh, date nights with my wife out to restaurants, one of the things that I occasionally do is I enjoy a glance to either side just to see what other couples look like on their tables and how they're relating. And you can't help it, but you look to one side and you'll see a couple who are in love and infatuated with one another there's laughter there's joy there's a sense of excitement at that table and you know that the food tastes better as a result that the whole experience is enhanced because of the atmosphere of love that exists in that relationship and around that table and then you look to the other side and you see a couple and you hardly wonder why they bothered because they're both on their telephones like on their mobile phones um, scrolling they're not really looking at each other or communicating they're indifferent or perhaps even angry toward one another it doesn't matter how nice the restaurant is how expensive the food is how choice the flavors that is not received to their palate as something enjoyable because there isn't the atmosphere of love and to know god's love in your life is to be to experience the atmosphere that pervades the entirety of life so that every simple pleasure in life is a way of saying is can be responded to him with gratitude you say thank you god for every good and perfect gift that comes down from you even the simplest things that i enjoy your love fills me with a sense of happiness in the day today and so moses asked for this happiness he asked for wisdom he also asked for this capacity to enjoy this short life and I think it's a joy that's only accessible to those who live under the knowledge that they are loved by their creator God. And this is a love that you can experience for yourself, but it's only available to those of you who want to come to God, first of all, in repentance and say, God, I'm sorry for my sins. I want to receive the forgiveness that's mine through Christ Jesus, through the Son of God who died for my sins. That is the only way the Bible tells us that we can encounter God and know his love in our lives. And then Moses prays this final prayer. 
He asks for what I want to, to describe as a satisfaction of meaning in his life, as short as it may be. And this is, comes through in the last lines of the psalm, verse 16. He says, Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Now, very naturally, I think that what's going on in his mind here is he's asking the question, if life is short, then what lasts? What is meaningful? In life, What is it that I should do with my time and, and what has lasting value? And it was a very important question to Moses himself because he'd spent the last third of his life wandering around in the desert with the Israelites. And there was a very real danger, unless he trusted in God, a very real danger that everything that he'd done with his life to that point could evaporate into thin air because they had no lasting legacy. The people could just as easily perish in that desert and the life work that Moses had invested himself into would disappear along with them. And so he, he calls out, what, what is there that we can do with this life that has lasting value? And this is a, sense, a sensation that many people experience at a certain point in life. We call it the midlife crisis, don't we? But it seems to me that it hits people earlier and earlier these days. That angst, that sense of crisis in the spirit where you ask, is what I'm doing of lasting worth and of value? How do I invest the short time that I have? How do I use my strength and my abilities and my talents? And it becomes a more pressing question as you begin to feel the body creaking and your powers fading and opportunities closing and your optimism of a life that could go in any direction shutting down as you realize, no, 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 you're very much stuck on the path you're on. And then we ask that question with increasing urgency what is it that lasts? What is it that gives meaning? What is it that gives satisfaction in life that makes it worthwhile? And the answer, like it or not, is wrapped up, at least in part, with our work, with how we use our strength and what we build, what we are invested in. Now, this issue of work is far more important than we often realize because we tend to think of work as a necessary evil. That life is what happens outside of work. Work just enables life to happen. Life is the stuff in between work, and work is just something you have to do. But the Bible shows us that there is a much richer and more complex picture in which you were created for many things, but one among them, a very important aspect of what you were made for, is to work, to live a fruitful life, to live a life that is productive in the sense that you are seeking to honor God and obey Him and do His will in what you do. And this resonates, of course, with what we understand through the modern psychology of understanding happiness and well-being and flourishing, that good work is essential to the fulfilled life. And that resonates with Scripture. The Bible has always said that. And what is it then that makes work meaningful? And I don't want to say that the answer is so much to do with what you do in life, except so far as God has made it clear what you ought to do and you ought to obey him or, and to disobey him is going to be a problem. But generally speaking, there is no real, there's not much restriction around what we're called to do. Most work is good, and we're called to do all kinds of things in our life. But rather the question is to do with who we live for. So that all our work can be wrapped up with value and meaning and lasting worth if it's done for God. That's what makes work fulfilling. That's what makes it last. 
This is why Moses praised us at the end. He says, establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. He knows that ultimately, that it is only what is done for Christ that has lasting value. And this sets up again this possibility for us of two ways of living our lives. Either we can live a life that is either opposed or indifferent to God, and that all we do ultimately then will have no lasting value. It's doomed to fail ultimately and to be destroyed. Or, as is the prayer of Moses, we live our lives as an offering of worship in which everything, every ounce of energy that is expended, every droplet of sweat, when done for God, is taken up in his plans and purposes as something pleasing to him. And this is never more clearly true than in the words Paul says to some slaves when he's writing his letter to the Colossians. And remembering that somewhere between a third and two thirds of the Roman Empire were slaves. So many, many, many of the early Christians were slaves who were not free to do what they wanted with their lives. And they could have looked at their lives with frustration, perhaps looked at the life of the Apostle Paul, a freedman, and said, I wish I could be free so that I could serve God in this, that, or the other way. And Paul turns to them and says, no, 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 that's not the point. He says to them, he addresses them very directly, and he says, slaves, obey in everything those who, you, who are your earthly masters. In other words, they're, they're bosses. Not by way of eye service, as people pleases, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And here's the key line. He says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. This is the radical and powerful truth of what it means to live for God. It's not so much a question of what you are doing with your life, except insofar as we're called to be obedient. But it is much more a question of doing everything you do in this short life as an offering of worship to him, with this great confident assurance that when we live our lives for him, it has lasting value. The things we do somehow are taken up in God's plans and purposes and have eternal value and ultimately are answered with the rewards that God wants to give to those who are faithful to him. I want to close now and just give you a final thought as I do so. That ultimately, the real test of your worldview is your capacity to deal with the reality of death, with your mortality. And the truth may be that death feels to you more like a horror than something that you can face and, and face bravely or face with courage. And it may be because you're not a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, it's very likely the case that the worldview that you have imbibed is inadequate, that it, it either turns a blind eye to death or it rages against death, but it does not know ultimately how to deal with death. But even many Christians have not really rightly confronted the reality of death. And this psalm is an invitation for us to do so. And as Christians living on this side of the cross, death does not have the terror to us that it would otherwise have. In fact, we can face it square on and we know that death is not the end because Jesus Christ himself passed through death and came out the other side as the resurrected savior. And what the scriptures say is that he was the firstborn from among the dead. The guarantee, in other words, that every one of us who believes on him will be raised and ultimately live a life beyond death.
And so we're called to live life backwards, to borrow the title of a book. We're called to begin with an acknowledgement of the reality of our death and then to prepare our lives in advance for that coming day, which may come sooner than you think. Even just this week, I was reminded of that fact, knowing of a friend who has been discovered to have a stage four um, cancer in his brain, which, short of the mercy of God, is likely to lead to his death at some point. And I say that with unbelievable sadness. A Christian begins with the reality of death. You confront the worst thing. And you recognize that the terror of death has been taken away. But then, you don't end then. Yes, we're called to fall on our face before God in the fear of God and say, God, save me. But then we're called to work life backwards from there. To call out to God for this wisdom that Moses asked for. To ask for happiness in the day-to-day. To enter into this day. And I charge you to enter into this day with gratitude, with joy, knowing that God loves you. But then ultimately, to resolve in our hearts, I want to work and live for God in cooperation with God and use this short time that I have that I live a life that has lasting meaning and value into eternity because it is lived ultimately for him and not for myself. Friend, is this true of you? If it's true of you, you could die today. You'd be ready for it. And if you're not ready, then ask yourself the question, how do I get ready? And I want to challenge you to come before Jesus now. This Savior, as I said, passed through death. The Apostles' Creed tells us he descended into hell. But then he was raised. And friend, this gives us unbelievable confidence as Christians. I don't fear death. I feel sad about it. I feel sad about being separated from loved ones. I feel the sadness of, 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 of this reality that ought not to be true of us that we die, but I am filled with hope. I believe on Christ. He's the solid rock upon which I'm building my life. I know I'm not afraid of the storm. I'm not afraid of my mortality. And you do not need to be afraid either. So why don't you bow your head with me as we pray in response to this? And why don't we take up these prayers of Moses as our own prayers, even in this moment? And Father, we ask, first of all, that you will teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. And I pray, particularly for those who are watching who do not know your saving power. And we'd have to say, Lord, that their lives up to this point have been characterized by the life of the fool that Jesus described, building a house upon sand, building building a life that's that's based on temporary things, the accumulation of wealth or or possessions or whatever in this world, all things which are destined to pass. And we pray, Lord God, that the contemplation of our mortality will call our hearts to respond to you in humility, that you fill us with wisdom and teach us how to build upon Christ and his word and to be saved by calling out and clinging to the rock that is Christ. Fill this day with your joy as well, Lord. That even if this subject is serious, Lord, we know that it doesn't lead to sadness. Ultimately, it leads to the sensation of the sweetness of our lives right now. Every good thing is a gift from you. So teach us to rejoice in this day and not to mope around in self-pity. 
ignoring all your blessings and benefits, but to be happy that we are your children. And I pray, Father, for a fresh resolve in us, Lord, that we want to live for you. We want to crawl back on the altar and, Lord, live lives that are sacrifices of worship to you. We want lives that, live, that are lived and that have ultimate and lasting meaning because they are lived in service to, the, to our almighty God. And I pray these things in your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen.